I don't know if any of you were, were thinking this when, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, the children get to, to, get to leave. <laughs> this, this isn't a statement on um, my popularity, I hope. Maybe it is. I mean, we should all be humble. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Trevor. I'm an elder here at Trinity Grace, and it's a privilege to share from God's Word with you this morning. I don't know if any of you felt this way as uh, the Scripture was being read. This isn't necessarily the most preachable passage of the Bible. Uh, It's a lot of um, greetings and mentions of individuals and um, not necessarily the most natural place to uh, find theological principles. Um, But I think uh, there's something really powerful for us in uh, digging in a little bit to some of these stories and some of these characters. Some of them are actually very familiar. Some of the names that are mentioned to us here in this passage are familiar names and others less so. But I think as we look at a few of these characters of the Bible and consider their stories and their life experience, we're going to see that the, the gospel has both a lowering and a lifting implication in our lives. The Understanding the gospel humbles us and it dignifies us. When we understand that God, the creator of the universe, became a helpless child, lived a perfect life as Jesus of Nazareth, fully man, tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin, and that he offered his perfect life in exchange for ours as a substitute for ours, and that he experienced the complete weight of justice against sin, the full weight of punishment for sin on our behalf, and that he not only suffered for us, but that he also was victorious over sin and death for us, that he was raised to life, and not only raised to life, but exalted to the right hand of the Father, and that He is King over the universe. Understanding that, believing that, trusting in that, both lowers us, it humbles us, and it lifts us. It dignifies us. Paul has already spoken about in Colossians how the the gospel is good news for everybody. And that's what this passage is about from Colossians chapter 2. Where did I start in that? Beginning in verse 9. But um, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The gospel is good news for everybody. And highlighted in red there, we see that there are different things that happen to those who trust in Christ. We are filled in him. We are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We are buried with him in baptism and we are raised with him uh, in his resurrection. Oh, now you can't even see. It's coming. Cool. 
we'll just take a pause here and uh, we'll bring it up. Cool. Thank you so much, Steve. That's going to be helpful. Yeah, so these are the key phrases that come out of that passage that we have been filled, that we have been circumcised, and that we have been buried and raised. So the gospel, first of all, it satisfies us. It fills us. I think this is something that comes through when Jesus institutes the giving of bread uh, as says, this is my body, which is for you. We, we are satisfied by Christ. He is the bread of God that satisfies us. Uh, we're also purified or sanctified. And this circumcision that the Bible refers to obviously was first of all a sign of being a part of God's people. And Abram was circumcised and the children of Abraham were circumcised in order to indicate that they were God's special people. But this is also a word that the prophets take up in the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about as a word of purifying, that our hearts would be circumcised, that we wouldn't just be marked as God's people on the outside in some external way, but that we would be marked as God's people through Christ internally, that our hearts would be changed. And so the gospel not only satisfies us, it also purifies us, and it transforms us. This is the idea that the, we're baptized into the death of Christ, and we are raised just as Jesus was raised. And over and over again, Paul talks about this idea that comes up in Romans 6, that we are baptized into the death of Christ, that we are raised to a new life when we trust Him. And as we visualize that, we see the lowering and the lifting implications of the gospel. There are other passages that speak about this lowering and lifting implication of Jesus coming into the world. In Luke chapter 1, this is Mary celebrating what God has done by making her pregnant with the promised Messiah. And she says this, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in, their thought, in the thoughts of their hearts. And He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And we see there the lowering implication of Jesus coming into the world. Proud people are going to be humbled. Mighty people are going to be brought down. Thrones will be toppled. And there's also this lifting implication of Jesus coming into the world. He's exalted those of humble estate. Luke's Gospel actually talks about this quite a bit in the early chapters. And Simeon this is a character, a man who encounters Joseph and Mary at the temple. Simeon blessed them as the parents of, of Jesus, the earthly parents, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your, through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Again, very clearly falling implications, lowering implications of Jesus coming into the world, and also rising, lifting implications of Jesus coming into the world. Then in the next chapter of Luke, uh, 
Luke makes this comment on the ministry of John the Baptist. It says John the Baptist is fulfilling this prophecy that says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley, every valley shall be filled. There's going to be a lifting implication of Jesus coming into the world. And every mountain, every high place is going to be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places will become level. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, it's certainly true that part of what is prophesied about Jesus And part of this idea of of thrones being toppled and mighty people being brought down is a prophecy about people who will not believe, who will not respond favorably to Jesus coming into the world. And that's one way that the gospel has a lowering implication, for sure. That people who are proud, who resist what God is doing in Jesus, who say, I don't need that, those people ultimately will be humbled, they will be brought low. But there's even an implication for all of us if we choose to trust in Jesus, the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done for us both lowers us and it lifts us. And I think in this verse, certainly when we hear about what, the, what Isaiah is saying, that the valleys are going to be filled in and the mountains are going to be brought low. And then it goes on to say, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's almost like Any obstacle in the way is going to be brought down and we are going to be able to see what God is doing to save the world. It's a little bit, I think, what Billy Graham means when he says the ground is level at the foot of the cross. As we approach Jesus, as we approach the cross, the pride is emptied out of us. There's a lowering effect of the gospel. And there is also a lifting of shame and a, an ending of guilt, and there is a lifting implication of the gospel. And so at the, the cross, things are level. So, the gospel both, both lowers and lifts. Let's talk a little bit about the passage uh, this morning and find some people who are being lowered and others who are being lifted up. Paul talks about himself at the very end of this passage, he says, remember my chains. This is a reminder that Paul is writing this letter to the church, the believers in a city called Colossae, and that he's writing from prison in Rome. He's under arrest in Rome. And he says, remember my chains. It's interesting to think about how Paul has been lowered because of encountering Jesus. Look look at what Paul says about his life uh, and his, his background, his beginnings. In Philippians 3.4, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, he says, I, I, I'm born with nobility. I'm born with a good status. Not only did Paul have a good status, born uh, among the Jews as a chosen person, he was proud of his background, He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And we know that this rabbi 
was an elite teacher. So Paul's basically saying in Philippians 3 that he was born in a good family. And then in Acts 22, we learn that he was taught at the best school. He went to Harvard. Paul had a very privileged education. And then he, in Galatians chapter 1, he tells the readers there that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. So he has a privileged birth, he has an elite education, and he's a star student. He was at a very high standing in life before he met Jesus. He goes on in Philippians to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul's saying, because of Jesus, I've been lowered. I had a good birth. I had a privileged education. I was doing very well. And then I met Jesus, and he says, I've lost all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul understood something that Jesus spoke about in one of his parables, where Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul would say, I've lost everything. I've given up all of my status. I've been completely lowered. At, the, at this point, he's even a prisoner. And he's saying it was completely worth it because I got Christ. I found the kingdom of heaven. I found Jesus. So clearly, Paul is one of the people in this passage who's writing to us from the perspective of encountering Jesus, and he's been lowered. He's been humbled as a result of these things. Just looking quickly at some of the ways that Paul describes his life, what his suffering was like. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, to the present hour, he's speaking about himself as an apostle. We hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. We, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is saying, I was doing very well. I had gone to the best school. I was a star student. I encountered Jesus. I've lost it all. And his description of his life is not a very pleasant description in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have become like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. I'm, he's saying, I'm not somebody that people look at and, and think of as privileged or favored. The gospel has lowering implications for Paul. Because he has found the greatest value of all things in Jesus, because he's been satisfied by encountering Christ, he doesn't need any of the other things that used to give him a sense of status and importance, and he's been willing to let all those things go, and even to suffer violence and hunger and deprivation for the sake of Christ. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, again describing his life, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. And then he just goes into this litany of circumstances where he's been in danger. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all from other things, there is the daily pressure on me uh, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. Who wants to sign up for this life? This is, jo- this is Paul's job description of what it means to be an apostle. And he's describing a life of hardship, a life of difficulty. And it raises the question, Paul, if you had a privileged birth, if you had an elite education, if you were advancing beyond many of your peers according to the standards of education and success as a Pharisee, why in the world would you be willing now to be writing to the Colossians in jail, but also being as living a life as he describes it here? The gospel has lowering implications. Here's what happens. People encounter Jesus and they find that in him, They are fully satisfied, and so they're willing to let go of other things. This challenges me because there's an idol of comfort in Western society. There's an idol of success and progress and upward mobility. And the gospel confronts that assumption about life and says there is something even better than succeeding on the world's terms. There's something that God has to, can give us that is better than getting the life we've always wanted, and he has a name, and it's Jesus. And when we meet him, when we encounter him, when we embrace him, when our lives are transformed by him, we have encountered the one reality in the universe for which we can give up all things. The gospel has lowering implications. I guess the question for us this morning is how has your love for Jesus allowed you to walk in greater humility and sacrifice and self-denial? So many times I hear a message of the gospel that somehow is sort of like accessorizing our lives for our own advantage. That we would come to Jesus so that he would make everything even better than it would have been otherwise, like glaze on a donut. And that's not the message that we just need some sort of trimming around the edges of our lives. The gospel has lowering implications. The second character, just really quickly, is Epaphras. We know from earlier in Colossians that he's the one who actually started the church there. And just listen, just notice and read there how Paul describes in this passage for today what Epaphras' life is like. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He's worked hard for you, Paul says. Epaphras, who obviously was a leader, obviously a person of influence, 
who could have used his life in a variety of ways, has become a humble servant to this little group, this little countercultural gathering of Christ followers in the city of Colossae, and he's giving up his life for them, Paul says. He's struggling for you all the time in prayer. Epaphras has allowed himself to be humbled because of the gospel. Because he's met Jesus, he's become a servant to the people around him. It's what Jesus predicted. Jesus had told his disciples about his upcoming death. Somehow, after hearing about that, they immediately got into a debate about who among them was the greatest. He's about to make the greatest sacrifice for the salvation of humanity, and their greatest concern is which of them is better. So they, he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve and said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And if this was meant to be something that we would just stir up in ourselves, we just decide, okay, I'm going to try to be a better person and serve more people, be more humble, we would fail miserably. But the gospel lowers us as we understand the gospel, as the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives, it has a lowering effect. And it also has a lifting effect. There's a reference in, uh, in this passage in the ninth verse there. It says that Paul is sending this letter to them uh, with a man uh, called Tychicus. And then he says in verse 9, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, we know a little bit about Onesimus from another letter in the New Testament, very brief letter written to a man named Philemon. And what we know from that letter to Philemon is that Onesimus was a slave. He was a bondservant of Philemon's. He was property belonging to Philemon in, in Roman culture. And that he had left, he'd escaped from that situation, and likely he'd also stolen from Philemon. In Onesimus' situation, he wanted two very simple things. He wanted freedom, and he wanted the means to support himself. And in order to do that, he broke the law. He fled from his owner, and he stole property from his owner. And somehow, after doing that, Onesimus encountered Paul, and he understood the message of the gospel. And because of that message, he understood that there was a freedom that's even better than the freedom that he'd experienced when he escaped from Philemon, and that there were riches that God had for him in Christ that exceeded the riches that he had grasped and stolen from his master when he left Colossae. And Onesimus has been changed. He's been transformed. He's encountered the gospel, and the gospel is lifting him. You can see it here in the language. He's no longer just a slave. He's no longer someone's property. Paul says he's our faithful and beloved bro brother. The gospel has lifted up Onesimus. Now, it's an interesting situation because Onesimus is a lawbreaker. And he's encountered this Paul who understands that mercy triumphs over judgment. There's something even greater than justice. There's mercy. 
And he's sending Onesimus back to Colossae saying, I want you to fully engage with this new identity that you're no longer just this runaway slave who stole things. I want you to be reunited with Philemon as a brother. Now this idea of just sort of putting justice aside because Paul is asking Philemon in the letter that he writes to him saying, please just treat this Onesimus uh, as a brother. Receive him in love. And so Paul's saying, put aside the fact that this guy messed up, that he broke the law, that he stole from you. And this is a bit hard for us to understand, I think, the, the depth of what's going on when justice gets put aside in favor of mercy. Because we're all kind of familiar with the idea, at least at some level, of letting things go, of forgiving things. And I want to just make some comments about justice and uh, why it's important. I guess one thing that I would say is that we all care about justice when it's violated in our own lives. One of the first things that many young toddlers say with passion in life is, that's not fair. We all have a sense of justice. Many of us are not very in touch with our sense of justice and indignation when justice is violated because it's actually not being denied us very often. And if that's the case, we should be maybe aware of our privileged position in the world. But justice matters to people who are denied justice. The other thing that I, I think we can say about it is that it's one thing for a criminal, someone who's violated what's right, to forgive another person their violation of what's right. It's a very different thing, though, to say that justice doesn't matter at all and eliminate the whole idea of criminality. We all want to live in a world of justice. We want to live in a world where what's right and fair gets done. So we can't just throw aside this idea that Onesimus actually broke the law and stole property from someone. And yet Paul is, because of the gospel, Paul is saying, I want you to receive Onesimus not as a lawbreaker, not as one who stole from you. I want you to receive him as a brother because the gospel has lifting implications for offenders. It has lifting implications for guilty people. In um, Les Mis, uh, which most of us know because of the stage production probably or, or the movie, First of all, a novel by Victor Hugo. So in the movie, uh, Russell Crowe plays uh, the character Javert, Inspector Javert. Do you remember this character? Jean Valjean has broken the law in Les Mis. And yet, in the course of the story, his life is being redeemed. He's experiencing grace and he, because of his experience of grace, his life is changing. He's becoming a blessing to other people. And throughout the story, though, Inspector Javert is like a dog barking at Jean Valjean's heel, saying, yes, but you broke the law. You did something wrong. And Javert has this very black and white, excuse me, this very simple understanding of things. If you do something wrong, you have to pay the price for that. And in fact, there's a, a way in which the Bible's message also pursues us that way. It says, 
There are standards of righteousness. God didn't create a, a world of chaos. There's this thing called justice. And when it's denied people, that offends God. And justice is the social expression of righteousness in our hearts. So even more than not being able to have a just society, we have this deeper problem of our hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes things worse for us who are following along with the Bible's message that righteousness matters, that justice matters, these things from the Old Testament. We say, okay, I get it. And Jesus says, but you have to understand God's standard of righteousness does not stop at the boundary of your flesh. It penetrates into your heart and your mind. God's idea of righteousness is not just about action. It's also about motive. It's also about affection. It's what we treasure in our hearts that also matters to God. And so as we begin by saying, yeah, righteousness is a good thing and justice is a good thing and we pursue that, you know where that sends us ultimately? The Bible sends us into this position of knowing that there is no way that we can ever fulfill righteousness. There's no way for us to ever fulfill justice. Onesimus had broken the Roman law in a very overt and clear way. But the Bible exposes that we are all lawbreakers. And not only have we offended our own standards of righteousness and violated our own conscience, not only have we harmed other people around us, but we've offended the God who created the world to be a good place where people would be safe and treated with love. And we find ourselves, ultimately, if we pursue the logic of righteousness and justice completely in the dark, covered in shame, filled with guilt, defeated and without hope. And then, and then we see Jesus. And Jesus looks at us in those circumstances, violators of righteousness, offenders against justice, covered in the filth of our own sin, not only our sinful actions, but our sinful motives, our prideful attitudes. And Jesus says, I will die for that person. I will die for that man. I will die for that woman, that offender. I will shed my own blood to purchase them for God. We want to believe in a God who believes in justice. This world is filled with injustices. And the Bible's message is that God stands on behalf of the victims of injustice with everyone who's trapped in poverty, with each girl who is violated sexually in human trafficking, male or female. Every place of injustice in the world that we can see, God is on behalf of those He's standing with those who are suffering injustice. And God is more than just on the side of social justice, although He is. He's also on the side of personal righteousness. God is so good that He desires that every thought of our minds would be pure. That every impulse of our motivation would be for the good. Our God is so good and so righteous. 
And Jesus is willing to die for the sake of God's goodness and righteousness. But even more than that, He's not only willing to sacrifice Himself to display to us how much God prizes what is good and what is righteous and how much He brings judgment upon every offense against goodness and righteousness in history. And Jesus says, I will take the burden of that offense. But then in the, in the wonder of the Gospel, Jesus also dis displays for us and makes real for us the fact that God doesn't just love justice and righteousness, he also loves people. He loves sinners. Somehow our offenses against Him, our, the way we vandalized His creation and wasted His blessings has not eliminated His love for us. And when Jesus goes to the cross, He perfectly combines God's love of justice and righteousness with His love for people for offenders, for rebels, for failures, for sinners. And we encounter the Gospel, and it not just lowers us, it doesn't just humble us, which it certainly does, it also lifts us. It gives us a new identity. We're no longer offenders like Onesimus. We're faithful and beloved brothers. I'm not going to say anything about Mark in length, except to say that his own story follows this example. Mark is a failure in the New Testament in many respects, and yet church tradition is that he's also the author of a gospel. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. That abandonment, we don't know much about it, but we know that it was significant enough that it actually broke up the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. It was a big deal. And here, Paul is writing and saying, welcome, Timothy, or sorry, welcome, Mark. And this one who had offended him, this one who was a failure, is now being commended to the church. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, when many have deserted him, he says, there's one person with me, and that's Mark. The gospel has both lowering and lifting implications. It did for Paul, it did for Epaphras, it did for Onesimus, it did for Mark, it does for us. Maybe for you this morning, the point of this message is to consider how the gospel needs to have a greater lowering impact in your life. Maybe the gospel confronts your pride this morning, your selfishness, your desire for things to be increasingly getting better and better in your life. Some bargain that you've made with God that would say that you'll follow Him as long as things are going financially well for you and your career's on track and everybody likes you. Perhaps you haven't fully and I haven't fully and likely in our lives we will never exhaust the wealth and riches of what God has given us in Jesus and we can cultivate a greater longing by God's grace for the gospel that lowers us, that we would grasp the prize of Jesus and be willing to let go of everything else. Can you imagine what God would do with people, a room full of people like this, who live that way, who said because we have Jesus, there's nothing more that we need and we will give up everything for Him? The world would be changed. In fact, 2,000 years of history proves that the world has been changed because people have caught that message. 
and have given up and sacrificed tremendously because of the prize they've already received in Jesus. So embrace the lowering implication of the gospel this morning and embrace its lifting implication. Onesimus must have been terrified going back to Colossae because he was an offender. He was guilty. He was dead to rights. Mark similarly messed up. And we all can relate to that reality. We all know the darkness of our own hearts. We can invite God to even reveal to us more. To search us and know our hearts. And the wonder of that is that we can fully face the reality of our own sin because of the gospel. We don't need to hide. We don't need to justify or make excuses because the gospel finds us in that position and it lifts us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, stories of the New Testament, the story of Paul, who was so humbled after he encountered you. And this little story of Epaphras who gave up his life to serve the church at Colossae with all of his energy. Lord, thank you for showing us that people are humbled when they encounter you. And we, we too have been humbled. We ask, Lord, that you would exalt Jesus even higher in our lives, that you would cause us to be willing to let go of all things in order to grasp him. And Lord, thank you for stories like the story of Onesimus and Mark, people who have failed, people who were guilty and yet were lifted up because Jesus, you completely satisfied justice and salvation at the cross. Thank you that there's nothing we can do that puts us outside of the reach of your love and your grace. Thank you that you dignify us, that you clean us, that you cleanse us. We celebrate the gospel that satisfies us, that purifies us, that changes us this morning. We pray all these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.